Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, my brother Jeff. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. It's good to be back. It's been a while. We, you know, yeah, we uh, were just discussing the slate of things to come off camera, and my goodness, lots of exciting things on the way. That's right. Well, how are you doing? I'm. Doing great. Been busy, 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 so, which is a good thing to be. So, having fun. Really had fun putting this particular episode together. Because it's something I'm personally quite interested in. So, yes. as always, we had a lot of fun. We're talking today about, as I say, something that's near and dear to me, but uh, something that really has deep roots in all things Disney. And that is, well, we're taking a voyage extraordinaire. An extraordinary voyage. Uh, that sounds exciting. Uh-huh. Sounds a little improbable. In- definitely. I'm sorry. No, it sounds impossible, should I say. <laughs> uh, what we're talking about, uh, Voyage Extraordinaire. This is the name, as we're going to talk about a little bit later, of a series of novels by Jules Verne. But, you know, the idea of scientific romance from the 19th century applies to a number of writers, H.G. Wells, many others. And these kind of stories have really been a backbone of Disney stuff all along. That's right. That's right. And, you know, just a real kind of kindred spirit. I feel like Walt and Jules, you know, both futurists and fantastical adventure stories. It's, It's three lands in one. Three lands for your buck in the Disney theme park universe. Totally. And these these Verne novels were basically true life adventures of their day with a like a sci-fi spin. Because he did the research and he'd be like, oh, here are all the things that you see under the ocean. <laughs> There's this fish and that fish and this fish does that. And uh, so, you know, it was kind of entertainment of the same variety, just in a different medium. Yeah, that's right. And uh, just imagining the influence uh, Vern would have had at the time is just hard to imagine, hard right. to fathom. Right. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about that influence and about Vern's different works and how they've touched the Disney parks and films over the years. Most notably, of course, Big movie, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That has had a lot of manifestations around the world in the Disney parks. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about something inspired by Vern, but much larger. A land that never was. Jeff, we're going to talk about Discovery Bay. That's right. A place that uh, not only never was, but kind of influenced a bunch of attractions around the world in the following generation. So absolutely. It casts a long shadow to this day. Yeah. A definite a project that pushes all my buttons to be sure. So a lot of intrigue and mystery there. So we're going to talk about that. So all in all, it's, it's a whale of a tale. And uh, I guess we should just set sail. Don't you think? I guess so. We'll just have to check in with our captain Let's check in with Walt. Got a whale of a tale to tell you lads, a whale of a tale or two, about the flapping fish 
and the girls I've loved On nights like this with the moon above A whale of a tale and it's all true I swear by my tattoo There was Mermaid Minnie Met her down in Madagascar She would kiss me any time that I would ask her Then one evening her flame of love blew out Blow me down and pick me up She swapped me for a trout Jules Verne once said What one man can imagine Other men can do and in his book, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Mr. Byrne himself imagined some pretty weird and wonderful things. However, when we decided to make a picture out of this classic story, we soon discovered that though Mr. Byrne was undoubtedly right, the imagining was much easier to do than the doing. Now, how we solve the many problems of getting this book of fancy fiction on film is the story we bring you on this program. It's hard to quantify the influence of a book like Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It immediately captured the imagination of readers when it was released in 1871, and has managed to do so throughout the generation since, even as a lot of Verne's predictions more or less came to pass over the years. One of the biggest reasons it continues to affect the imaginations of new generations is the book's partnership with the Walt Disney Company over the years since Walt Disney produced a film version of the book, in 1954. I mean, I can't imagine this book when it came out was like Star Wars times whatever to our yeah. to our generation. You know, like they yeah, had nothing like it. It's it really became a franchise. Like as we're talking about on this entire episode, these series of books from Fern. I mean, he had a franchise on his hands right. uh, before that was a thing. So, yeah, it must have been a, a big deal. That's right. Uh, but this book's film history dates back to the earliest days of film. In 1907, French director George Méliès offered an interpretation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in his distinct style, which played more as an elaborate underwater dream sequence rather than an adaptation of the book. But in 1916, the then-upstart Universal Film Manufacturing Company made an adaptation directed by Stuart Patton for the then-exorbitant budget of $500,000. Hmm. The film was one of the first movies to use underwater filming technology, developed by John Williamson and his brother George and their Submarine Film Corp. They were the inventors of the photosphere, a tube of concentric rings that could lead from a ship up to 200 feet below the surface to film in a cylinder. Uh, no thanks, is all I got to say. Sounds, sounds like a Living Seas pre-show. <laughs> in 1916, no thanks. Yeah. Uh, but it did work, and this technology would be used in films through the 1940s, actually. Um, he was kind of a film legend. The underwater scenes were shot in Nassau and the Bahamas, and shooting included a full-size replica of the Nautilus. This version of the Nautilus was based in part on the first mechanically-powered submarine, the French vessel Plongeur. Uh, that submarine was active in 1863, and Verne actually studied a model of the Plongeur at length before writing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So, uh, unbelievable scope for that movie. It was certainly a spectacular for its time. 
It included an elaborate flashback of Nemo returning to his native India, in addition to spectacular effects of full-scale ships and underwater shooting that we mentioned. So it caught the imagination of one young Midwesterner in particular, Harper Goff, who was only five when the movie was first released. Whenever he saw the movie for the first time, one of Goff's earliest memories of being interested in any art form was in drawing the Nautilus from Patton's film. Goff's interest in illustration was fused to the Nautilus from a very young age and would go on to shape his future career as well. Uh, this movie is on YouTube, and I highly recommend folks check it out. It is wild for its time. I mean, 1916, and they're out in the ocean with a submarine going around. I, I was when you were talking about. It, I was wondering if it was, uh, you know, if it still existed. So I've got to go watch this because, mm -hmm. I mean, shooting on. In that point, <laughs> shooting on location in something like that, you know, a big special effects heavy thing, that is really wild. It is. It is. And they use, like, mirrors and everything to, to get the underwater scenes. It's just uh, pretty, pretty crazy. Now, we have discussed Harper Goff on episode 27, so you should definitely check in on that episode. But some details that we've already discussed bear repeating. By 1951, another adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was being planned by producer Sid Rogel, who had floated between RKO and Fox Studios through the years. And there were not many, uh, you know, adaptations of this movie. The 1916 one was so expensive, uh, they didn't really make any more. But throughout that year, Walt and Harper Goff would begin discussing a project with the same title that has a few different variations in the stories told. Michael mentioned this on episode 27, but Goff tells two different stories here. One of an animated adaptation that Disney was working on, and the other, the one I hear more, is more of a true-life adventure film simply sharing only the title of the Verne novel and using revolutionary underwater photography developed by a Dr. McGinnity at Caltech. This, uh, we agreed last time, sounds more correct. Yeah, way more in line with what they were doing at the time. For sure. Yeah. The story goes that Walt left Harper for a trip to England with instructions to do some sketches outlining this true life adventure under the sea. According to Goff, based on memories of the 1916 feature, Goff began to visualize a sequence in the film, quote, in which two divers go down to the ocean floor and explore the wonders of the deep. When Disney returned, there was a buzz about the studio producing a live-action version of 20,000 Leagues based on Goff's continuity sketches, and Walt was a little bit miffed. Mm. Uh, according to him, Disney thought that MGM had the rights to the book so that they could not adapt it. But further examination showed that it was Sid Rogel, who now owned the rights, which Walt purchased for $100,000 in December of 1951. Even at this point, it seems like the movie was to be more true-life adventure than anything else. As according to the LA Times on December 28, 1951, quote, it will blend in many of the features of his nature classics and will have noted marine life experts as advisors. And as the production began to move into 1952, I believe this is the time that the movie came closest to becoming animated. Uh, what percentage of the movie was ever to be animated, it's hard to know. Uh, it's pretty clear that Disney was always planning on using some animation, at least for its visual effects. But as late as October of 1952, the Birmingham Post-Herald, 
with their finger on the pulse, reported, <laughs> quote, it's still undecided whether 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the film version of Jules Verne's fabulous adventure tale, will be live or cartoon action. Chances are that it will be both, combining human adventure with animated monsters of the deep, lensed in natural color. Uh, Michael, I just have a theory that maybe at some point this became, you know, one of their kind of mixed media, what would become like the anthology show where they maybe they have some cartoon segments and some true life adventure stuff. I, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's like where it man at. has many, many legends of tale of the sea. Uh, some said that a giant Kraken lived. Right. Blah, right. blah, blah. Yeah. So you may never it's know plausible. the story. Yeah. Regardless of the medium, production design began in earnest, and Harper Goff was hard at work trying to design the Nautilus for the film. Goff imagined a Nautilus that would be confused for a sea creature, as was described in the book. The illustrations of the book reflected something a little more sleek, a la the plongeur, the sub that Byrne had seen the model of, and so Walt had wanted a sleek, futuristic Nautilus. When Goff presented his version of the Nautilus, Walt thought it was too cluttered. According to Goff, he held up an aluminum cigar capsule and said the Nautilus should model that with a bullet nose. Oh, one of the rare Walt was wrong. Uh, really? Examples. Yeah. 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 Way off. Thankfully, uh, Goff went back and forth with Walt over the next year, refining and eventually convincing him that his design was best. And they really went at it for a long time um, with its heavy rivet patterns meant to evoke alligator skin along with the port windows hovering above the water like an alligator's eyes would goff added the sawtooth ridges in order to explain how the ship could cut through ships without being damaged and when walt thought nemo's knowledge of superior technology would make the nautilus futuristic and sleek goff countered by arguing that nemo would have built the nautilus at a secret base with iron salvaged from wrecks i, I love that these two wrestled with the rationale of why it would look away a certain way to that extent yeah that's so funny like walt was super involved and i mean goff going back at him is impressive because not a lot mm -hmm. of people would ever do that and a lot of, not a lot of people like the story always is you know if you came back to walt with something and he said no or fobbed it off then you just let it go because if right. you came back a second time you'd be in deep trouble you get beyond and the eyebrow get way yeah you'd get on the bad list yeah. and or worse and uh, so the fact that harper was able to go around with this for so long um i might have told this before uh so forgive me listener if i have but I heard uh, Tony Baxter was speaking one time and was talking about Harper Goff and like his strategy always was to leave art around like suggestively in prominent places right, right. for things he wanted to promote. And the two examples he gave, one was this where he, Walt was like, no, we're doing this other thing. And then every time Walt would come around, there'd be like a big, beautiful, like, drawing of like the golf nautilus and eventually mm -hmm. I'm like go fine <laughs> and the other was uh, when they were doing world showcase uh yeah. in what like 78 or whatever and he wanted to do it much like it is today and uh the studio wanted to do it in this really sort of concrete wedge style and so golf would just leave out his drawings and sponsors would come around to be like "Ooh, what's right. that i like that Right. Card Walker would be, you know, fuming or whatever. So uh, Harper knew how to work it. 
That's right. That's a pretty savvy move. But Harper was totally right. I mean, you know, we can't say enough about the design of this ship. I mean, you could just see the shape, the outline of it. You know, it just communicates so much and is truly brilliant. Yeah. In the summer of 1952, as work was progressing on what this movie would become, the Detroit Free Press out of the blue announced that Lawrence Olivier would play the role of Captain Nemo. And negotiations had begun with Charles Boyer for the role of Aranax. And a big fellow, quote unquote, like Paul Douglas was desired for the role of Ned Land. It turned out these reports were premature and perhaps just a little bit speculative. I uh, I mean, Lawrence Olivier would be amazing. It's hard to yes. imagine anybody else in the role. Uh and I wouldn't want to lose the Nemo we got. But man, uh, Charles Boyer as Aranax would be great. Well, stay tuned, my friend. There's more on that. But yeah, he would be great. He was who they wanted. Uh, John Tucker Battle was hired, however, to write an adaptation of the novel in 1952. And he quite literally adapted it to the tune of a 300-page script <laughs> that would have made the movie that lasted four hours. Oh, a writer after my own heart. Yeah. One of the big problems with the novel was it was so episodic. It, like so many of Verne's other Voyage Extraordinaire, had been released in serial form. So it was hard to wrap one's head around what a movie treatment of the book would contain. But suffice it to say, the 300-page script didn't really play well with Walt. And after a few tries at revisions, he would hire on Earl Felton, who he teamed with director Richard Fleischer, both of whom were relatively young and had experience working on B-movies at RKO. Now, Richard Fleischer was the son of Walt's old rival, Max Fleischer, who was an animation pioneer in his own right. And when Fleischer called his father to receive his blessing, he had to check with dad. The father <laughs> was incredibly supportive and enthusiastic. And in fact, uh, Walt would eventually have the elder Fleischer out for a tour of the studio and treated him to an excellent time, including a luncheon in Burbank and a tour of Disneyland. So that was good to hear. Oh, that's awesome. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Give him the props. Uh, Earl Felton quickly realized his script needed to have a kind of hook to tie in these episodes and quickly came up with a jailbreak conceit of Ned Land, Aranax, and Kinsey being trapped aboard the Nautilus as Captain Nemo's guests and trying to escape throughout the picture. It became the connective tissue of the disparate plots within the script. As Fleischer and Felton continued to fine-tune the script under the supervision of Walt, the true scope of a live-action epic undersea adventure came into focus. Over time, the story department would make a record 1,300 storybook sketches, sure. one for every line of dialogue in the movie, which I thought was pretty wild. Great. To accomplish filming this movie, Disney would be spread across several shooting locations and require more soundstage capacity than their studio had at the time. Disney set about to build Stage 3, a soundstage that would include a water tank with depths from 3 feet to 18 feet. This alone would cost $300,000, which incidentally doesn't seem like that much money. But uh, <laughs> quickly the bills would add up, making this movie one of the most expensive to create of all time at the time it was being made. So... It really paid off when they made Armageddon in that soundstage. Yes, though. it did. Yes, it was it all did. worth it. I couldn't stop thinking about Armageddon reading about this. Uh, <laughs> just how messed up my mind is. 
In addition, Disney would use Universal's backlot to shoot for the streets of San Francisco in their Western set and contract with Fox not only to use their backlot and water tank, but to use their brand new CinemaScope process. Oh. Disney contracted with Fox to do three CinemaScope movies, a process so new that there was only one lens to shoot it with at the time work began on this film. So while Fox was working on their movie, The Robe, concurrent with the early model filming of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and the two parties were waiting for a second lens to arrive from Bosch and Lohm, the lens was sent between the studios via motorcycle, which is going to be my nightmare. What? (laughs) Why? (laughs) Here's your lens, Mr. Disney. <laughs> so long. Be seeing you. Um, yeah, Weird. that is a job I would not want. The only lens for the news. Right. The two studios depend on. Bizarre. Oh. So now we know that the robe and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea have Are connective tissue. Yeah. yeah. Before filming began, though, the rest of the casting crew had to be hired, and we will see so many Disney legends, or should be legends, should we say, involved in coming into the company at this time to be involved in the production of this movie alone. This was a real time of Disney stepping out to become the organization they would grow into over the next decade and a half, really up until the opening of Walt Disney World, when they would take their next big leap. They were developing their TV properties, Disneyland, and live-action movie-making all at the same time. Hard to believe all this was happening at once. Mm. And without being a billion-dollar company, for that matter. Right. It was just a family shop. Uh, Two sound stages. Now three. But, I mean, all the stuff of WED starting out and... All their TV stuff and all the, you know, we've talked about a bunch of music stuff, like all the content they were about to produce. Uh, It's just a really cool time. But they, you know, kind of had to hire a ton of people. And a lot of those people would be there for 20 years plus. Mm -hmm. Uh, Disney did not have the personnel for live action filmmaking. So they brought in artists and personnel from other studios. Fred Jerger had worked at Warner Brothers and Fox and came over to provide models for the Nautilus. He would go on to make a model of the Mark Twain steamboat and be off to the races, establishing the model shop at Wed and becoming the best fake rock man in the world. That Fred Jerger, love that guy. Yeah. John Meehan would be hired on as the art director, in part because Harper Goff didn't have a union card, a sticky wicket that would keep him from properly receiving credit for his work on the movie, unfortunately. Uh, Meehan, who came from Paramount, would bring in Emil Curie, to help with Goff's designs of the interior of the Nautilus. Curie would have a lengthy career at Disney, working on almost every movie the studio made, as well as the theme parks. Emil is the goat, man, of interiors. I mean, if you are looking for somebody who casts a shadow, just the look of all these movies, like going into the 70s, mm-hmm. all these iconic interiors of all these movies, it's And, you know, theme parks as well. It's just unbelievable. That's right. For the interior of the Nautilus, Goff was inspired by cantilever bridges and the battleship USS Oregon that was put into service in the 1890s. A lot of those bunks and doors and all that stuff. Uh, Goff and Curie collaborated to make the Nautilus look elegant and Victorian while also maintaining its riveted appearance from the exterior. 
I can't put it much better than Goff, who stated, quote, nothing looks more attractive than a combination of rough iron and elegant luxury, which, well said. <laughs> there you go. Can't argue with that. Curie would set about borrowing props from other studios, but a few were found and kept by the Disney studio. Among these was Nemo's organ, which was purchased for $50 from a theater, and this organ would go on to grace the Haunted Mansion's ballroom at Disneyland, so that seems like a pretty good investment, I would say. Yeah, not bad, yeah. Amortize that. That's right. You know, Curie would go back and forth with the brass, too, about making sure that the deep reds were preserved in all the upholstery, which ended up being a great thing. They were trying to talk him out of that because they thought it was going to freak out the cinemascope lenses. Hmm. Um, he was, these people are right, man. Stand up for what you believe. An even cheaper investment, perhaps, was some dime store plastic salad bowls the legendary John Hinch found at a store near his studio, which he inverted and used as the glass walls providing a view into the Nautilus's nuclear-powered engine. <laughs> so he was very proud of that. Uh, the interiors would be built with wood, masonite, and fiberglass, which was quite revolutionary at the time. And new fiberglass technology. What do you know? Getting ready to use a lot of that at Disneyland, I guess. Yes. As for the cast, that remained in question for the bulk of 1953 and wouldn't be fully settled until 1954. In September 1953, columnist Hedda Hopper reported that Disney was having casting troubles with the movie, reporting that Disney very much wanted Charles Boyer to be in the role of Aranax and Ralph Richardson as Nemo. So stay tuned. That Charles Boyer would be really oh, good Aaron. So good. So good. Finally, on December 26, 1953, Kirk Douglas was announced as being signed on to play Ned Land, the first of the key cast to sign on. I cannot imagine anybody else as Ned Land, but Michael, just one day later, again, the Detroit Free Press was at it again by saying, Greg Peck may play Captain Nemo. Ronald Coleman may play Aranax and Bill Holden as Ned Land. Now that's a movie I want to see. Oh, so, yeah, Nemo, <laughs> get me out of here. War is terrible. <laughs> that would be incredible. <laughs> that would be incredible. Oh, I need to go to, this is my multiverse of choice yes. that I'm going to jump. I want to jump through all these versions of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I know. I was like, Gregory well, they, Peck. I was like, you can't question all these Nemo's where I was like, man, this would be amazing. This would be amazing. I was like, but you can't question Ned Land. But I was like, oh, Bill Holden as Ned Land would be Holden. really great. Just crotchety and sarcastic. <laughs> like throwing stuff against his uh, quarters like a baseball or something. <laughs> yeah. 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 I had to look up where the Detroit Free Press got all these scoops or try to figure it out. It pointed to Charles Levy, a man who did publicity for Disney at the time. So was he just throwing these names out there to see what stuck or, or did he know something? I don't know. That's so weird. Uh, finally, Disney signed up the rest of the cast, including James Mason, who originally didn't want the part, and Paul Lucas, who took over after Charles Boyer was signed, but eventually withdrew. Oh, that's a bummer. Sounds very close, and I think a bummer for the rest of the cast, as we will find out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
bringing Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea to the motion picture screen, we found that we really had two stories to tell. And it was the Aqualung that made both these stories possible. Story number one was fiction, the novel itself, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And this we brought to the motion picture screen in the full color panorama of CinemaScope. But story number two is fact. It's the story behind these underwater cameras. And this is the story we're going to bring you now. It's a true life adventure at the bottom of the sea. Here, about 180 miles east of Miami, lies the little island of New Providence, one of the Bahamas group. On the northern shore is Nassau, world-famed resort city. And just off the western tip lies the clearest, bluest water in the world. Here, five fathoms deep at the bottom of the sea, our true life adventure begins. Some of the most revolutionary filmmaking took place underwater, as Disney really pushed the limits of what had been done in underwater filmmaking. Fred Zendar was hired to do the diving sequences and designed a wetsuit along with Harper Goff that placed an aqualung inside a Japanese pearl diver's helmet. This is, I mean, pretty, scuba was pretty new. I mean, as we said, mm-hmm. they were using the aquasphere just a decade prior, so... When Walt didn't like the bulky underwater suits of the time, special watertight outfits were designed with rubber to be more form-fitting. These suits, along with the 16-pound lead-soled boots that were designed to keep people on the floor of the ocean, were tested in the Del Mar Beach Club pool, which had to be some (laughs) sight to see, and I think Walt was out there. So, boys, are you ready? Walk over there, boys. (laughs) Let's see how it looks. The underwater scenes took place in Nassau, incidentally very close to where the 1916 version's underwater scenes were filmed. Some very clear water in Nassau at the time. Filming began in January of 1954, where 20 tons of equipment, including three underwater cameras, were brought to the location. The Mitchell camera, which housed the CinemaScope lens, lived in a watertight case that could adapt to the pressure of deeper waters, which was another brand new innovation at the time. Team also had an Aquaflex camera they could do dolly shots with, and a team of divers to act, and also to act as so-called safety men to watch all the actors and ensure their safety. Shooting began with cloudy skies, and as the sunny weather was required to get the appropriate sunlight 30 feet down where the filming was to take place, delays plagued the set for three and a half weeks. Finally, when conditions were right, a team of 33 submerged to film the underwater burial scene, the scene that involved the most actors. This was a record for most people submerged simultaneously at the time. Hmm. And for this, the crew would have one hour from the time the first person put on their helmet to get out to the chute, get the scene done, and get back to the boat. Another nightmare of mine, along with the motorcycle. Mm-hmm. Once submerged underwater in their 150-pound suits... Actors would grab ropes attached to dinghies, which I love to picture this. They grab the ropes on the dinghies that provide transport to their shooting location. <laughs> like a, a drop shuttle. ship. Yeah. Yeah. Once there, teams of safety men would watch, usually one for every two actors. An elaborate system of hand signals was developed to help the crew communicate and signal emergencies. And according to stuntman Norm Bishop, one of these safety men was a 300-pound wrestler, quote, that could tuck one actor under each arm and swim up. So... There you go. The crew could do up to four dives per day, which sounds like so much work considering they had to bring in all the compressed air and these suits were such huge pains. No thanks. 
On the seafloor, the coral silt was prone to being easily stirred up by the actors, so giant hemp mats were moved around to keep the water clear. The fish and various sea creatures not used to such intrusion would disappear, calling for animal wranglers to gather them up and keep them in rope containers to be tossed out when needed. <laughs> Some more there fish. you go. We'll just throw it. Uh, we see in this movie even just rowdy treatment of animals like that net full of lobsters they're carrying around and dragging the sea turtles. Just uh, it was a different time back then. I yeah. Guess. The manhandling of the sea turtles pretty rough to watch. Pretty but, You know, rough. lobsters I could take or leave, but uh, that's right. Leave That's the sea turtle alone. I, I was thinking, you know, I I'm in, I was impressed at all this safety, like human safety stuff. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. You you think then, like back then, maybe they'd just be like, whatever, we'll just go in and see what happens. But uh, that's right. Impressed by that, but uh, it hadn't quite reached the animal, uh, the animals yet. No. Speaking of things not reaching where they are today, after work in Nassau Rap, the crew also visited Jamaica for a filming of a scene I just wish was not in the movie. This, of course, is where the cannibals chase after Ned and can say. Though the Nautilus scenes from this were done in Hollywood, the beach scenes were done on location at Negrel Beach. This beach, home now to a sandals and all manner of resorts, <laughs> was then completely isolated. I had to look it up. It's sandals over there. It made for a glorious location to shoot. Shades of uh, the Swiss Family Robinson, uh, you know, bringing all the stuff in and all the equipment in over through the jungle. Totally. Um, Walt came down and participated in the shoot, was caught on film, drinking from a coconut and throwing a spear with Kirk Douglas. So he was getting into it. My main takeaway from this, aside from it aging so terribly, was the aesthetic is so completely Jungle Cruise, which makes sense because of a lot of the folks involved with bringing the Jungle Cruise to life were involved in this film. Uh, more on that in a minute, but Harper Goff was also there helping make the set dressing down to painting individual skulls. And there's like a little film of him like painting a skull. So, well, Harper's right. still there. Back in Hollywood, work commenced on the three studio backlots of Universal, Disney, and Fox. In the new Studio 3 at Disney, work began on what would be one of the biggest headaches of the whole motion picture production, filming the squid attack. At first, the scene was shot at sunset in calm waters, and both the squid and the effect of the setting were just not right for the film. It was not dramatic enough, and it appeared clearly fake. And if you've ever seen the <laughs> the film from this, it's it is a completely different movie. Mm -hmm. It's just it's wild. incredible to me the turnaround. Yeah, because this could have been just an absolute disaster. awful, awful. Yeah. So to his credit, Walt authorized Fleischer to reshoot the scene as needed. The solution would cost the production another $250,000 to shoot. It was decided the scene should be moved to night, which was Earl Felton's choice and shot in a powerful storm to add drama and perhaps provide cover for the squid itself. In addition, the squid would be overhauled. During the initial shoot, the motion of the squid had been inadequate, using piano wire and trying to operate it simply as a puppet. In addition, the material it had been constructed of would absorb all the water it possibly could making it unbelievably heavy <laughs> and pieces of the tentacles would fall off during the shoot and have to be glued back before shooting could <laughs> imagine yeah. the smell oh i know Plop. <laughs> now two men would be in charge of the squid whose names i did not know well and i feel foolish because i can't believe i hadn't heard more about them until now and that is chris mueller and bob maddie 
so we have to take a detour for me here and chat about them just a bit. Mueller was in charge of the sculpt of the squid, as well as other sculpts on set, such as the pipes for Nemo's organ, which were done in plaster. He studied under his father and other architectural sculptors and modelers. In fact, once claimed this was a family profession for 500 years. So oh, good grief. There you go. He started apprenticing at the Panama Pacific World's Fair in San Francisco in 1915 and started working in Hollywood in 1936. He was working on miniatures at MGM when he got the call to work on the squid brought into work with Disney legend Bruce Bushman. Two squids would be built. One a five and a half foot long miniature, and of course the larger version for the battle. In addition, Mueller sculpted the figureheads for the ships, spearheads for the cannibals, and the eleven foot shark model, Michael, which is uh, something. You want to talk about the shark model for a second? No. <laughs> what more can it's you say? Like the, um, you know, like uh, in the old like Star Wars documentaries when from like the eighties when they would be like, and we move the camera like past the model of the right. Millennium Falcon or whatever. <laughs> kind of yeah. like that, but with a model it's shark. A, yeah. Something. It's something. After his work on this picture, he would work on the Jungle Cruise with Goff, sculpting many of the animals on the attraction. But he would also sculpt the elephant for Dumbo the Flying Elephant, the figurehead for the Chicken of the Sea ship, and the Peter Pan boat for Peter Pan's flight. Wow. Unfortunately, after Disneyland opened, Mueller was laid off. He would go on to do lots of work in film, a lot of monster movies. He would do Jaws 2. He also worked on some ornamentation for some of those fantastic sets in Hello, Dolly, which was so influential in the Florida Main Street. Eventually, in 1969, he would come back to Disney and do some work for Walt Disney World, including gargoyles and ornamentation on Cinderella Castle. He also did some work on the Haunted Mansion. He would also return to another Disney film in 1974's Island at the Top of the World, where he would work on the Hyperion airship model, which is a wow. pretty big deal. Yeah. He also did some sculpts for the Italy Pavilion and World Showcase at Epcot, including the griffin and man on the facade of the Doge's Palace. So a wild slice of Disney and film history there. I mean, really? Yeah. It's, just, it's a shame they lost him for so many years in between because obviously he's a very talented guy. Absolutely. Bob Maddy was in charge of making the squid move in addition to several other mechanical effects on set, such as the iris on the window of the Nautilus. Mm. Maddie began his career in film in the 1920s with the movie King of Kings before going on to work on King Kong in the Tarzan movies at RKO. Harper Goff had seen an octopus that Maddie designed for the film Wake of the Red Witch and hired him on to help make the squid lifelike. The squid's tentacles operated via venturi tubes, which curled in with vacuum and curled out with air pressure. In addition, a crew worked with piano wire to help due to the weight of the tentacles. This was quite a feat to coordinate with crews manipulating the piano wire up in the catwalks and another crew at the controls of the squid. Yeah. Yeah. Maddie would go on to even greater Disney heights as he would get hired by Walt to be the head of the studio's mechanical effects department. There he would set to work in pioneering the pre-audio animatronic moving figures at Disneyland. He worked on getting all those animals Mueller sculpted to move in the Jungle Cruise, meaning the core of the team that brought the Jungle Cruise to life. No Bill Evans, of course, but Goff, Mueller, and Maddie all worked on this feature together. So very Jungle Cruise adjacent. Mm -hmm. In addition, Maddie would be responsible for the Timothy Mouse figure at Dumbo the Flying Elephant, some early effects on the mine train through Nature's Wonderland, 
the movement of the animals on the shores of the rivers of America, the burning settler's cabin. Wow. And the train effect in Mr. Toad, which wow. also involved an iris. So, I mean, what a dude. Really? He would also work on the 20,000 Leagues exhibit, which we will discuss in a bit. But this would be enough to cement his legacy in park lore alone. Oh, absolutely. Just all these things that stick in your mind. Right. Maddie would also work on the ghost house concept, the earliest draft of what would become the Haunted Mansion with Ken Anderson. And they would set up many of these illusions on a soundstage at the Disney studio. But Maddie's work in film is equally, if not more, incredible. Maddie was responsible for many of the great effects in The Absent-Minded Professor, helped the nannies fly in Mary Poppins, and the rest of his filmography at Disney reads like a Medfield College Film Society to-watch list, and have watched. Uh, Babes in Toyland, Son mm. of Flubber, The Monkey's Uncle, Robin Crusoe, USN, The Nomobile, Blackbeard's Ghost, The Love Bug, Boat Nicks, The Wild Country, The Barefoot Executive, and Scandalous John. <laughs> so he was the man that was uh, hooking everybody up to those uh, magic flying contraptions and all kinds of stuff. Did yeah. the, the Model A miniatures and all that stuff. After his work wrapped on Scandalous John, Maddie was laid off in 1970 and entered into retirement, or so he thought, which is just un inconceivable. It's really blows my mind when people who did so much get laid off. Yeah. Like, why are you going to lay them off? That's crazy. Right. Uh, just a few years later, however, Steven Spielberg came calling and had Bob Manny create Bruce the Shark for Jaws and Jaws 2, an even more famous sea creature than his first Disney work. I mean, just wild. Just wild. to have all of that on your resume yes. is bananas. He was, Yeah. Wow, so it's like him and Bob Gurr making things work in Disneyland in the in the early days. Mm -hmm. uh, for the new squid scene, up to 16 people operated the squid now, with even more operating the piano wires from catwalks at times. The squid weighed almost a ton and could move up and down via hydraulic ram and in any direction on a dolly. The squid's beak opened and shut, and its eyes also had movement in addition to those tricky tentacles. Uh, now, this was like real, you know, leading to stuff in Disneyland and Audio-Animatronics. This was kind of like the the bridge uh, that really made them realize we can make stuff come alive. Mm -hmm. The studio borrowed wind machines and even had a wave machine in the tank to provide appropriate water effects for the scene. And these were so effective that, according to John Hinch, stage three didn't fully dry out for several years. <laughs> and every time a door would be opened to the studio, water would just pour out in every direction, which I like <laughs> to imagine. <laughs> what? Um, the result, however, was truly stunning. And though it cost an extra $250,000, made a truly iconic scene and fitting climax to the film. I mean, how many times does this make it into a montage and it still looks good. I mean, so many of these effects look good still, which is, yeah. I mean, how many movies can you say that about? Yeah, especially from that era, hardly any. Right. It's really remarkable. And, you know, the the uh, savvy of everybody involved to know what wasn't working, because, I mean, it mm -hmm. could have come off like an Ed Wood movie if they didn't Looked do it right. Awful, yeah. And yeah. Uh, like you said, it's always in the little sizzle reels. It's always in the you know the greatest hits montage, yeah. always. That scene was just one of a stunning array of special effects shots done for the film. In addition to the amazing model makers, Ralph Hammeras, who was a film pioneer in special effects work, 
was in charge of the special effects photography. Peter Ellenshaw, who apprenticed under one of the pioneers of matte work in films, would do incredible matte work for this film to follow up his work on Treasure Island and several of the other live-action films Disney would do in England. Ellenshaw would get his papers to move to America for this movie and continue a career that would cement him as a film legend, particularly in regards to his Disney work. Peter Ellenshaw, they don't get any better than that. And mm-hmm. some truly beautiful, beautiful paintings for this one. Mm-hmm. At Fox in the Water Tank was a 22-foot replica of the Nautilus used for surface-level shots. One of the many models of the Nautilus was equipped with lights all around it for those shots of it cruising through the water and the dark glowing from below the waterline. That's another one that makes it in all the sizzle reels, the, mm-hmm. the monster shot. There was also a 30-foot model of the Abraham Lincoln ship and just wild processes where they would make all their illusions come to life. I mean, just you know, like pulling stuff with wires attached to a truck. <laughs> pulling like paintings down below the back of the water tank and like making stuff blow up, uh, like all these wild, uh, you know, combination shots, just a different era of making movies, but it's so creative. Yeah. Uh, it's like a really like a, a magician, you know, yeah. like a stage yeah. magician. Uh, crucial to many of these shots was the Fox water tank, which measured 300 feet by 190 feet. Now, that's the one we talked about in the Welton Beckett thing where they tore down to make Century City. So, RIP. Not mm. that much later. Back at the Disney studio in their tank in stage three, many of the underwater scenes of the Nautilus were filmed. These look so good. I mean, just. Yeah. They look perfect. Disney's animators worked on providing some of their own work in special effects. And then they toiled for months on footage of underwater fish of the bioluminescent variety. Most of that footage would be left on the cutting room floor. Still, some animated effects would remain outside Nemo's window in the ocean depths, as well as the lightning sparks created by the Nautilus on the cannibal's feet. That's a little fancy effect. On set, actor Paul Lucas had a hard time with almost everyone and was constantly threatening to sue actors and directors and even (laughs) Walt himself for the difficulties he was experiencing. It was very, very, very bad time. I will sue you. I will sue you all. Uh, James Mason reportedly never left character on or off the set. He was doing the method acting thing, which would be fairly alarming considering his character. That would be horrible. (laughs) Yes. Oh, but despite all the challenges, photography wrapped on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in June of 1954. Disney's own Paul Smith, known for his dramatic scores of animated films and the True Life Adventure series, offered a stunning score, a real winner, and songwriters Al Hoffman and Norman Gimbel offered the sea shanty ditty, Whale of a Tale, which Douglas's Ned Land sings early in the film. This, this was such a trademark of these great Disney movies of the time that even if they weren't musicals, they would always have a great song at them at some point to move the move the movie along. I really miss that. They were and they were always such good songs so mm-hmm. many times. Yeah, I mean, as you say, not not a musical and Kirk Douglas, who you never think of as a musical actor, but he does great and it's a super catchy song and it's yeah. a fun little moment. Oh yeah. And it still gets used all the time. Uh, Hoffman had worked for Disney on the songs for Cinderella. Gimbal would have a fascinating career. I mentioned this on the Medfield 20,000 Leagues episode, but it bears repeating here. He would write the lyric to The Girl from Ipanema, Killing Me Softly, 
and helped write the themes to Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, among his many other works, including a song for Lady and the Tramp 2, Scamp's Adventure. So just a giant lengthy career for him. That is just an unbelievable like trivia question in the yes, making. Yes. <laughs> That's, I mean, yes. any one of the, like, Whale of a Tale combined with any of those other options right. is nuts. But yeah. all of them is just unbelievable. By the time the production wrapped in September, 20,000 leagues had amassed a record $5 million expense. Just another example of Walt putting all the chips on, in on a project. Hard to imagine that this and Disneyland were going on at the same time. And by the time all expenses would be added, including promotion, it would balloon to $9 million. Mm. This movie would get its big send-off to the public via Walt's new television show, Disneyland, and its episode, Operation Under Sea. This is a fantastic version of the anthology program that hits so many notes that it would use over the next decades, uh, including that kind of Epcot. We have that cartoon sequence going through the history of humans going underwater, again with the wacky historical retrospective. Then we get some of that underwater photography that reads like a true life adventure the project started out as before going behind the scenes and showing how these underwater shots for the movie were accomplished. So hitting all those notes together just makes for a good Disney TV special right there. All in all, it served as a fitting springboard for the movie as it hit theaters in December of 1954. And the movie ended up a tremendous hit, though it never made its money back in its first run. Still, it served as a high water mark, if you'll pardon the term, for the studio and what it could do as it moved more and more into a live action studio. It also set the bar high for what would follow, in addition to winning over viewers for years to come. Not only that, it would win two Academy Awards, one for Best Special Effects and another for Best Art Direction. Unfortunately, as we mentioned before, Harper Goff was unable to receive that award due to him not having a union card, which is a real mm. shame. I mean, just that is brutal. Yeah. It even led to TV accolades with the Disneyland TV special Operation Undersea winning Emmy for Individual Show of the Year. By the time the awards were handed out, this film had become part of the larger Disney world, and the song Will of a Tale, That Infernal Squid, and The Nautilus would be used time and time again over the coming decades and down to this day as part of the lexicon of Disney. As 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was released in December of 1954, it became a hit, and in 1955, Disneyland was under construction. 
As we've mentioned, these two projects share some DNA, and in fact, at one point, Walt wanted to use the squid from the movie for his Jungle Cruise attraction, which would have been very <laughs> odd. <laughs> yeah. Jungle squid. Uh, luckily, Bob Matty and Harper Goff talked him out of that one. But not only would that lead to the idea of how to make the mechanized animals in Jungle Cruise come to life, some of which are still in the Jungle Cruise waters today, but also to another attraction that would remain in Disneyland for over a decade. This was the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea exhibit. Michael, it's hard to imagine a time where this wouldn't come with a colon and a whole other expression on the other side of it. I just love the simplicity of this name. <laughs> 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea exhibit. <laughs> what TM. more can you say? Uh, it's also hard to imagine a time where you couldn't ride the movies just about anywhere you went. And uh, yet this was a unique opportunity to experience this movie through sets, models, and art being on display in this walkthrough attraction. Very unique to its time. Yeah. And uh, like, I feel like growing up, there would be maybe a stray mention of this. Maybe in Disney was like, oh, here's a weird fact. Uh, mm -hmm. Like back, way back in the day, there was a 20,000 leagues exhibit in Tomorrowland. But like you said, it was there for more than a decade. That's a long time. It's wild. It was just there. Yeah. Well, this, along with many of the attractions in Tomorrowland, were a product of a shortened timetable. As we discussed in our Tomorrowland episode earlier this year, this seems to be a shared condition with most of the Tomorrowlands, that in the pursuit of grasping the most tomorrow thing possible, they wait until the very end of the planning process to commit to Tomorrowland. And this is how you arrive at attractions like the Aluminum Hall of Fame, the Bathroom of Tomorrow, and the world beneath us, all of which I would very much like to visit for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but as the opening date loomed on the near horizon, Disney looked for exhibits to entertain on a vanishing budget. Man, yeah, 1955 Tomorrowland is one of those special places that was quickly lost to time. A lot of interesting, unique things there. Yeah, it was kind of like the early interventions of its era in yes. that they were yes. like let's get like trade exhibits yeah that you might already have kicking around and put them in and uh because they were so ephemeral they weren't there long and they weren't well documented so they're super mysterious that's right this attraction would be located in the same building where the aluminum hall of fame bathroom of tomorrow and the dairy bar would be located <laughs> Or roughly where Star Tours or the Starcade is or was located or whatever. Uh, Starcade will always be located somewhere, Michael, in my heart. Mm -hmm. At the time, this space looked ever the World's Fair exhibit space with a little high school gym lobby mixed in. Uh, but Michael, just imagine roaming the halls with a nice cool glass of milk surveying the exhibits. Yeah. Ice cold milk from the dairy bar. A nice, fresh, freshly drawn glass of milk good stuff that's right the 20,000 leagues exhibit would outlast its contemporaries in the space and really pave the way for the concept of exhibits based on letting people see into how movies are made at the time of its creation there wasn't really much like this the universal studio tour would have some fits and starts but really just allow celebrity tour buses through the back lot in the 50s and it would be in the early 1960s that their backlot tour would start in earnest, aided, incidentally, by one Harper Goff, who would design the studio trams. Huh. Harper, man. 
so a chance to see how movie magic was made in person was a fairly novel concept. But this attraction would not only provide that, it would put visitors in the Nautilus in a very convincing way. With all that said, let's take a quick visit. Welcome aboard the submarine Nautilus. You will see the Academy Award-winning motion picture sets actually used in filming Walt Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Guests in the high school gym lobby, I mean, uh, anyway, they would uh, be greeted by a 40-foot-wide facade with a mural depicting some of the high action from the movie and an almost carnival-style design announcing the attraction and surrounding the doorways. Two portholes would include movie scenes, and a ticket booth stood between the two doors, an entrance and an exit. The exhibit was circular and took guests on a counterclockwise journey. Yeah, the outside of this looks pretty funny now to theme park uh, aficionados, because it's very plain. I mean, it's a nice mural, but it's very, like, 20,000 leagues under the sea. Experience the movies. It's very yeah. carnival barkery. I was about to say, you expect like a carnival barker out there. And they're like, step right this way. See the thrilling squid battle. Once inside the exhibit, you would hear the familiar strains of Whale of a Tale and greeted by your narrator, the one and only Thurl Ravenscroft. Of course, Thurl. <laughs> he was everywhere. Welcome to the submarine. <laughs> That's right. In the middle of the circular exhibit was an underwater diorama you could look out upon when you first entered called the final resting place of the Nautilus. This was an underwater scene that had a blue-green tint to it with some underwater ripple light effects, showing the upper deck of the Nautilus stuck on the ocean floor, filled with coral and undersea treasure. Uh, This would set a tone for this attraction, having some very dramatic moods and some great lighting that would accentuate it. And now this lighting seems really ahead of its time. Yeah, really, definitely. Uh, very moody, it sounds like. Yeah, the final resting place. It's also interesting to be like, welcome to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Now <laughs> behold the sunken vessel. That really does like have a <laughs> carnival-like feel to yeah. it. Yes. Witness the final resting place of the Nautilus. What it stories all- do these right. men have to tell, I wonder? It all starts with story, Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, also in this first room was a model of the Golden Arrow, the ship destroyed by the Nautilus in the first scene of the movie. This model was repaired to be displayed in the exhibit and measured out at 12 feet, so wow. no slouch here. From there, you would enter the first set used in the movie, the wheelhouse where Nemo and his crew would look out when the Nautilus was above the surface. As with all these sets, designers added pipes and details around the edges to make the transitions into the movie sets seem more real, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Um, So they were trying to keep it in the world of fantasy a bit, which is interesting. In most ways, this is presented like you're touring the Nautilus from real life, but it's also clearly from the movie, and they acknowledge that. It's really interesting. They're like, Hmm. this is where the movie was filmed. This is also where Nemo and his crew would do this. And it's like, (laughs) it's interesting. Double speak. Yeah. Up next was a chart room with its spiral staircase, which was used a lot during the film. 
Afterwards, guests would go through a passageway that was used in the film as well, though it was widened when moved to Disneyland to pass fire regulations. So I always think of this as such a cheap attraction, but they do a lot of custom work to make it kind of fit in, which I think is interesting. Yeah, they didn't just drop it in there in an empty warehouse. They actually had to work on it. Right. Uh, this passageway would lead to Professor Aranax's stateroom with a bunk and writing desk that included the professor's journal. This reminds me a little bit of the Swiss Family Treehouse. Uh, that is even more in the realm of fantasy, so maybe Walt liked the idea of visiting where the characters lived more as a concept. He's like, plus yeah. it up, boys. Touch it up. Yeah. Got little, little, uh, little, some little things in there for people to see. That's right. <laughs> I gotta have the things. Well, after the stateroom was a real highlight of the attraction, Captain Nemo's Salon. I just wish I could have seen this in person. Looks incredible. Uh, this included the fountain from the movie, the pipe organ, Nemo's library, and his specimens. <laughs> <laughs> Outside the giant window was the giant squid itself, the very same one from the movie, specially reworked for this attraction. According to Bob Maddie, they decided they wanted to squid on a Monday, and by Friday it was installed in the park, which he claimed was his quickest turnaround ever. The squid lived in its own little shed outside the building, which I think is funny, as it was too large to fit in the building. There it would operate from a Hudson V8 engine. Man, I hope it wasn't the Hudson Hornet. I know, old dog. Yeah, that would attach a cylinder to 12 piano wires each to make the squid seem lifelike and not have repeat movements that guests could detect. Weird. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Just hear the... It's outside the shed and a little, like, a little umbrella over it. Yeah. Uh, like the Jungle Cruise, designers and engineers would quickly learn of the unique stresses of running a theme park on equipment. As movie sets and props were designed to be used and disposed, the shelf light on a lot of these things was not what would be required for a theme park. The piano wire cables would quickly wear out and be replaced. The beak of the squid would shatter and need to be replaced as well. But, uh, I mean, I imagine for kids, being able to see this in real life would be something that would leave quite an impression on them. I, I know. I would have been totally inconsolable at this <laughs> <I know>. point. <laughs> That's the real squid used in the movie, so you know it looks lifelike. Man. Mm -hmm. Oh, ran out of gas on the Hudson. <laughs> Big Fire cloud of blue again. smoke out in the parking <laughs> yeah, lot. <totally. laughs> Zoom V8 running in the backyard. But um, from the salon, guests would go to the pump room of the Nautilus and then to the diving chamber. Here you would see a kind of green neon light coming from the water well and periodic bubbles coming to the surface. So a neat little effect there for another memorable set. Yeah. It's not looking cool. After that, you would visit the outfitting room with its diving suits. These would also not stand the test of time and begin to rot, causing them to be replaced over the time with fiberglass castings. And also here, designers would complete this set without its spiral staircases. This was the same spiral staircase used in the chart room during the film. That's a little movie magic for you there, Michael. <laughs> Just a little peek behind the curtain, folks. That's right. After that, guests would visit the power supply room with John Hench's salad bowls. 
According to accounts, every one and a half minutes, the lead mask would raise up and a door would open, revealing white light and a roaring noise. Now, this I really want to see. <laughs> maybe that's where they kept the V8. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It's, it's like uh, Walt Disney World's like synergy technology is like where the heat plant from the plant runs the air conditioning right, or whatever. So right. it's like, well, put in the engine and then that'll serve as the... The nuclear explosion. I just imagine that being a really special effect. With Thurl Ravenscroft narrating. <laughs> Stand Behold, back, folks. The power of the sun. <laughs> oh, yeah. Splitting the mighty atom. <laughs> Finally, you would enter the last room, which would again highlight the diorama that the whole exhibit had been circling around, the final resting place of the Nautilus. Uh, also in this room was the 11-foot model of the Nautilus used in the film. Just a beautiful model. There were mats from Peter Ellenshaw hanging above the model. Now in the movie, these had been painted onto glass frames with blank spots in the paintings where action would be shot to have lifelike movement that was surrounded by the painting. But in this exhibit, the holes would actually be filled by artist Albert Whitlock, which I find a little odd. Hmm. Um but beautiful mats of Vulcania and other production art would be in this room. So, man, don't be messing with the matte paintings. You can't be messing with an Ellen Shaw like that. Come on. Yeah. And that would do it. You'd be back out in the high school gym lobby, but this sounds like such a cool place to visit on a Disneyland day in the 50s and 60s. See some real sets and props from a huge movie. Uh, the crazy thing is this was supposed to be in the park for six months, but ended up being there for 11 years. Uh, it was also initially conceived of having costume guides take you through the exhibit, but instead they had the soothing tones of Thurl, which I believe that is preferable. Would you like living with the, uh, listen to the land style? Like, That's right. And over here we see <laughs> the resting place of the Nautilus. <laughs> and Captain Nemo's specimens. I just can't believe it was there for 11 years. I know all the things that it outlasted. Yeah. Uh, is just wild. Later on in its life, the exhibit would close on the weekends and become the 20,000 Leagues Bandstand in the early 60s. Just what? imagine, just out front, they just... <laughs> yeah. I imagine it sounded terrible in there, uh, incidentally. but I wish they uh, dressed like the sailors from Well of a Tale. That is a good cool. idea. That's a good idea. By the end of its life, this attraction was a huge fire risk. Again, the wood and fiberglass sets were never meant to live this long. So, as the land was cleared out for New Tomorrowland, unfortunately, all this was fairly unceremoniously dismantled and taken out the back via the squid shed. But the 20,000 Leagues exhibit wouldn't fully be gone as it would reappear in a new form and discovery land at Euro Disney. Tony Baxter and a generation of Imagineers had experienced the original at Disneyland and would lovingly recreate an even more fantastical version at that park that lives on to this day. In that, those Imagineers stand in a long line that leads back to Walt, who, the night before Disneyland opened, was in the exhibit himself, painting in hopes that the attraction would be open on opening day. I cry about bad weather, enjoy it. Each moment is a treasure, enjoy it. We are travelers on life's highway, enjoy the trip. Each lovely twist and byway, each bump and dip. If there's a complication, 
enjoy it. You've got imagination, employ it. Then you'll see roses in the snow. Joie de vivre will make them grow. Voilà, that's life. Enjoy it. There's the grand old man himself, Jules Verne. This is the way a moonshot looked to him back in the late 1800s. Old Uncle Jules may not have had all the answers, but he had the right idea. He was just a little ahead of his time. Jules Gabriel Verne was born in Nantes, France in 1828. A novelist, poet, and playwright, he is best remembered for his Voyage Extraordinaire, a series of 62 novels, some of them posthumous and at least one of them ghost-written by his son, uh, which featured adventure stories based on real-world scientific discoveries. Known as the father of science fiction, the enduring popularity of his writing has made him the second most translated author in the world, behind Agatha Christie and ahead of William Shakespeare. Well, all of that is shocking. Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie. Huh. Apparently, many more fans than I was aware of around the world. I guess. I guess so. Uh, Verne's novels reflected the depth of research he would put into each title, and for many, the story served as a makeshift education of sorts, reflecting as they did the latest discoveries from a range of scientific fields. Beginning with Five Weeks in a Balloon in 1863, he would take readers to destinations man had only dreamed of at that point in time. With such legendary tales as Around the World in 80 Days, Journey to the Center of the Earth, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The Mysterious Island, and From the Earth to the Moon in the Verne canon, it's no surprise that Verne's stories have endured and that they have been heavily incorporated into the Disney canon of adventures over the years. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is the Verne novel perhaps most associated with Disney, thanks to the success of the 1954 film adaptation. But aside from the film, Nemo's Nautilus has made many other appearances in the Disney parks. As mentioned elsewhere in the show, sets from the film provided a much-needed attraction for the sparse Tomorrowland lineup in the early days of Disneyland. But it wasn't until Walt Disney World in 1971 that 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea received its due, with the arrival of an eponymous attraction in Fantasyland at the Magic Kingdom. Uh, Jeff, we'll save this one for a future show, but it sure did loom large in early ads for Walt Disney World. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's just part of the visual. Again, we talked how the subs are so just uh, just the amazing design, but the visual vernacular, you would always see it, like you said, and then in all the, you know, logos with vehicles it would be there still to this day sometimes you know it's <laughs> it was uh yeah a real big part of the landscape there yeah. and such a no-brainer uh when you think about it although where it goes is kind of interesting but anyway we'll talk about that later <laughs> right yeah yeah it was something that they always put in like whenever right. there was a montage of stuff it which makes sense because it, it was absolutely just riveting to see that yeah, it was ship perfect by coming the way. through the lagoon I mean, yeah. there. 
they yeah. did it just perfectly. Right. Uh, this Florida attraction was the first of several 20,000 Leagues homages by a generation of Imagineers who had been bowled over as kids by Walt's film. We'll see later in this episode how Vern's tale casts a long shadow in Tony Baxter's unbuilt creation, Discovery Bay. The idea of a Nautilus tour was finally realized in Discoveryland at Disneyland Paris. As we mentioned elsewhere, this lavish walkthrough attraction, it takes guests through the interiors of the Nautilus, even recreating the infamous squid attack, which provides the film's climax. Discoveryland as a whole is a massive tribute to Vern and his contemporaries, such as writer H.G. Wells, and it's rife with references to scientific romances and voyage extraordinaire. A brilliant overlay for, for Europe. As, oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it fit like the mandate. We, yeah. I mean, we talked about this with Tim Delaney. You know, they had a mandate to have French culture. And what a better way to do it than this. You That's have right. the British with H.G. Wells. Uh, it's It just works out so well. Uh, as we mentioned also in our Tim Delaney interview, one of the highlights of Discovery Land when it opened was the Circle Vision attraction, Le Visionarium, known alternately as From Time to Time or The Timekeeper. Many names in different That's places. Right. That's right. Uh, this attraction shook up the Circle Vision formula by being the first of that type of show to have a plot instead of serving as merely a travelogue. It also added the element of advanced audio animatronics and special effects, which were quite effective, and featured a rousing Bruce Broughton score. This attraction seems to get a lot, lot of stick. Even Delaney didn't seem overly fond of it, but I think it was a fun idea. Well, I always liked the, you know, there were things about it I didn't like, but I liked the overall idea of it. And the idea of punching up a circle vision movie is is pretty interesting and i think they could try that you know again yeah yeah, yeah lots of uh, like fiber optics and pepper's ghost mm -hmm. and really well done effects I, I agree there are things i did not like about the show i certainly didn't like the attitude uh, especially of nine eye the character well, yeah. of nine eye is yeah. just grating <laughs> yeah um way too sort of cynical and sassy for me but the general idea i think is a great idea yeah and the you know given all the props to jules verne i'm not gonna say no to that exactly uh the the plot as we say followed timekeeper and his assistant nine eye as guests were taken on a voyage through time along the way we do meet jules verne himself played by french actor michel piccoli Vern is fascinated by Nine-Eye just a little too much, winds up getting sucked along with her through time into the present and into the future of France. We even get an H.G. Wells cameo played here by the great Jeremy Irons. Which is one of the real crown jewels of, of the attraction. Absolutely. Pour la conference. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> a line I would repeat endlessly. And yes, a, yes. as a kid... Uh, or, you know, a teenager when this came out, it was fun to just have Jeremy Irons in like a bit part, basically. Be like, hey, it's Jeremy Irons. Yeah. And it's like he had just been, in, uh, you know, in the new Spaceship Earth. It's mm -hmm. like Jeremy and Lion Irons King. Just, and yeah. He was all over the place. Die Hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Around that time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, across from Disneyland Paris's Visionarium arose an even greater tribute to Fern, Space Mountain from the Earth to the Moon, based on Verne's 1865 novel From the Earth to the Moon. 
This was the tallest and fastest space mountain upon its 1995 opening, and the first to feature inversions. It was also the first full-circuit coaster to have a catapult launch, and the first to have synchronized audio tracks. Following the plot of the novel, guests found themselves being launched from the Baltimore Gun Club's enormous Columbiad Cannon on the way to an encounter with the moon. Sadly, the storyline was removed after only a decade, but fans continue to clamor for its return. Yeah, I don't understand that. It just seemed perfect, but... Right, yeah. People, man, those Disneyland Paris fans are are really eager to get that back. So yes. I, I hope for them they get it back someday, because they seem to really uh, love it. Space Mountain drew heavily on the imagery of Georges Méliès' legendary 1902 sci-fi film, A Trip to the Moon, also based on Verne's novel. This film has a way of popping up in pop culture, and it's sprinkled throughout Disney film and television theme parks. Uh, it makes an appearance in 1955's Man in Space, for instance, where it's introduced by Ward Kimball. It also famously appeared in Epcot's Horizons attraction, where guests could see Vern in his wrought iron capsule heading towards the trademark Smiling Moon. Uh, this, this movie was just everywhere, it seemed, growing up. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Like, all, yeah. People love Melies. In researching this, I read that, I mean, all, almost all of his films were nearly lost. This had to be rediscovered, you know, decades after the fact. Because he, he, I don't know, had business problems, got mad and like burned all his negatives and huh. in his yard. <laughs> and uh, oh. so we came, it's hard to think that these were kind of obscure and came close to losing them. But thankfully, thankfully they survived. That's crazy how much they got. Yeah. I mean, just back to the book. I mean, that that one. So many things that were ahead of its time. That How would how would they be predicted? Just Right. Well, yeah. Like, like having it launched from Florida. That's exactly right. Yeah, that that's is so exactly crazy. Is, you know, yeah. Yeah. Discovery Land is not the only land with a Vern theme, however. At Tokyo Disney Sea in the shadow of Mount Prometheus lies Mysterious Island. This land, named after the 1875 Verne novel, recreates Captain Nemo's secret lair on the island of Vulcania. It features two attractions based on Verne's stories, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, of course, and Journey to the Center of the Earth. Unlike Walt Disney World's 20,000 Leagues attraction, the Tokyo version doesn't put you aboard the Nautilus. Instead, you're traveling in smaller submarines of Nemo's design. Journey to the Center of the Earth, on the other hand, features a ride system that is a refinement of the test track technology from Epcot, and it also features a score by Buddy Baker. Which is just wild. I mean, what a career. Yeah. <laughs> he was still going then. It's crazy. Uh, this is a really trippy and weird attraction we'll have to do a deep dive on someday. It even weirdly has ties to plans that were once hatched to add a Journey to the Center of the Earth set piece the Disney MGM Backlot Tour. <laughs> Naturally. Blah. <laughs> and here we are in the center of the earth, folks. <laughs> so weird. Of course, there are other Verne stories sprinkled throughout Disney's history, notably 1962's In Search of the Castaways. It's based on the 1868 Verne novel Captain Grant's Children. 
directed by Disney stalwart Robert Stevenson. This is a fun film starring Haley Mills and Maurice Chevalier. It's a nice villainous turn by Cher Khan himself, George Sanders. In the story, Mills plays the daughter of the missing Captain Grant, who sets off on a globe-trotting adventure to find her father. This is, of course, the movie that gave us Enjoy It, as well as the beloved Grandpa. Which, I mean, come on. It Worth mean, it for that alone. Leave a legacy. Excellent. That's right. Even 1979's sci-fi adventure, The Black Hole, while not explicitly a Verne adaptation, is pretty clearly a soft remake of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. What with the crew of the Palomino happening upon a Victorian-styled spaceship helmed by a madman who has fled society to seek his own personal utopia. Big 20,000 Leagues vibe. Uh, major, major, yes. Protect me from Maximilian. <laughs> <laughs> What's next for the Vern Disney connection? Well, within the last decade, Disney toyed with the idea of a theatrical remake of 20,000 Leagues with a variety of A-list talent attached. For an exciting moment, it seemed David Fincher might be directing, but that project eventually fell apart with Fincher later blaming fear-based corporate culture for backing away from it. In February of 2022, however, it was announced that filming had begun on Nautilus, a live-action dramatic series for Disney+. As is often the case these days, the project is intended to present a familiar story from the antagonist's point of view, says Disney. For the first time ever, Nautilus tells Jules Verne's epic story from Captain Nemo's point of view, an Indian prince robbed of his birthright and family, a prisoner of the East India Mercantile Company, and a man bent on revenge against the forces that have taken everything from him. But once Nemo sets sail with his ragtag crew on board the awe-inspiring Nautilus, he not only battles with his enemy, but discovers a wondrous underwater world, learns to take his place as leader of the crew, and goes on an unforgettable adventure beneath the sea. I'm excited about the ragtag crew. You can't you beat a ragtag rag crew. You gotta have the ragtag crew. I mean... You know, it's it's one of the key elements. Yes. That ragtag crew. Uh, this is going to be a 10-part series starring Shazad Latif as Captain Nemo, Georgia Flood as Humility Lucas, a privileged <laughs> daughter of the British Empire who is taken hostage on board the Nautilus, and uh, Thierry Fremont as Gustave Benoit, a French engineer and architect of the submarine. So I guess this was not Nemo's own design in this one. Also on the heels is the East India Mercantile Company, those guys, and its ruthless director Crawley, played by Damien Garvey, who will stop at nothing to capture the precious submarine. So this is a slightly different take we've got going here. Interesting. I wonder if they can tie in like a baby Dwayne Johnson to you know, <laughs> get the Jungle Cruise tied in here. Just like a CGI baby Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> a baby with like deep fake Dwayne Johnson face. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those East India guys up to no mm. good. Rora Pente. Director Crawley. Director Crawley. Bad guy. Send him, send him off to Rora Pente. The, uh, That's right. The uh, nasty little prison there. Mm -hmm. uh, we can only hope this show is good and inspires a new wave of interest in the scientific romances of old. Enough interest to catch the eye of those who make things happen. 
they might see the potential benefits of new theme park adventures themed to tales by Verne and his contemporaries. Those of us who are fans of Voyage Extraordinaire can continue to live in hope. Si nous tombons, pas mais c'est la mort effroyable. Mais qu'importe, nous avons eu la joie de grimper. N'ayons pas peur des belles et hautes montagnes. Grimpons, 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 grimpons. N'ayons pas peur des belles et hautes montagnes. The history of Disney theme parks is littered with lands that were never built. Right from the very start, Disneyland itself teased the coming of Liberty Street, an expansion that would never appear. For everything that has been built, there are many ideas, whether it's Animal Kingdom's beastly kingdom, Tokyo Disney Sea's Glacier Bay, or a dozen or more unrealized World Showcase pavilions that exist in the Imagineering vaults to taunt the imaginations of generations of fans. Perhaps there is no lost land which has captured the imaginations of parkgoers more or which casts a longer shadow, than Discovery Bay. The brainchild of legendary Imagineer Tony Baxter, this land of Victorian futurism would have been placed between Disneyland's Fantasyland and Frontierland, and would have whisked guests away to the 19th century Barbary Coast area of San Francisco. In this world, however, Gold Rush-era prosperity had been channeled into the development of science, leading to a number of adventures and experiences straight out of the pages of Jules Verne, a setting which we would today call steampunk. The Discovery Bay saga began in the 1950s, when Baxter and another Imagineer named Tom Sherman first saw the Disney epic 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, they were both immediately obsessed with the Nautilus and its world, and each individually spent quite a bit of time poring over the sets from the film when they were exhibited at Disneyland. An avid model builder, Sherman would go on to devote a great deal of his life to recreating the Nautilus in various formats, not the least of which were the detailed models he would create for fellow fans, including author Ray Bradbury, who featured the Nautilus prominently in his study. My man. Yeah, he knew what was up. Baxter, for his part, arrived at Wed Enterprises as a young man and found his first assignment to be apropos. He was designated to help Claude Coates with the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea attraction, for Walt Disney World. What a, mean, what a job. Yeah, really. What a way to start. <laughs> yeah. Man. And, you know, using all those golf designs. Right. Around this same time, the Disney studio was facing some critical problems. In 1959, the movie division had seen a financial loss. Uh, expensive prestige films such as Sleeping Beauty, Third Man on the Mountain, and Darby O'Gill and the Little People underperformed at the box office. The only success that year was the inexpensive high-concept comedy The Shaggy Dog. Now, this led to a wave of similar films, which made up the bulk of the studio's output for the next few decades. 
With Walt turning his attentions more to theme parks and his Florida plans, the studio was running mostly on autopilot in the hands of Walt's trusted lieutenants and stuck mostly to the same safe formula. Now, this was all well and good until Walt died in 1966, and the studio slowly began to run out of projects which he had first put into development. And also, Walt's top-level brain trust either began to retire or move on. By the 1970s, Disney was still putting out light family comedies, the quality was dropping off, and the studio was seen as thoroughly behind the times. The film and animation divisions made up an increasingly scant share of the company's profits, with theme parks shouldering most of the financial burden. In fact, most of the film division revenue came from re-releases of Walt-era classics. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, you ring this up, we were talking about Bob Manny a little bit ago, and he gets laid off in 1970. You know, he's kind of like, when Walt died, you know, all these movies, even if they were the comedies, would have some kind of special effects as part of the DNA. Mm-hmm. You, know, you think of Absent-Minded Professor or... You know what, what have you, and uh, and then once he died, it just the quality started. You know, you, they did all the Walt movies he kind of had in the hopper, and he said once those dried up, it was just over. You know, the quality went down, and 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 those people kind of got laid off. Yeah, so. and I mean, it really was around. You said he was let go in nineteen seventy. About that time, you know, the last of the things that Walt had touched. I mean, you ran through, you know, your. Herbie, your Blackbeard's ghost, and you're mm-hmm. getting your bed knobs and broomsticks. And then that was about pretty much it for anything Walt had had anything to do with. And right, so right. then it became the sort of pale imitation sort of things. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a rough time. Uh, to stop the bleeding, the studio sought to return to some of the ambition of its past. With a success of 20,000 leagues in mind, they optioned a novel called The Lost Ones, written by Ian Cameron in 1961. The book tells of a modern-day Arctic expedition which finds a lost society descended from transatlantic Viking explorers. The project was put into the hands of some true Disney heavy hitters from Walt's time. Producing was the longtime Disney writer, director, producer, and iconic voiceover artist Winston Hibbler. Hib. Hib Hibbler. Hib. Old Hib Hibbler. What a great guy. In the director's seat was Robert Stevenson, who would make 19 films for Disney in his career, including a slew of notables, including, uh, but not limited to, Old Yeller, Darby O'Gill, The Absent-Minded Professor, The Love Bug, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and, of course, Mary Poppins. Uh, He had quite quite a lineup. Yeah, he was a uh, hip machine. And just knew how to do it. You know, that's that's a a bunch of different kinds of movies, too. Yeah. He got a lot of credit in the 70s when he kind of retired from trade publications, saying he was, uh, at that point at least, and a lot of people still refer to him that way, the most successful director of all time financially. Mm -hmm. Because he, uh, at the time, he absolutely was. Yeah. Uh, And probably adjusted for inflation might still be. That's wild. He had even directed the 1962 Vern adaptation In Search of the Castaways. Yes. With Haley Mills, uh, a good one. So with this level of talent, it's clear that Disney had major ambitions for this film they were making. In fact, with that level of talent, it's hard to see how they failed. The script was written by John Whedon, a prolific television writer and the grandfather of Joss Whedon. 
The team decided to change the setting of the film from the modern day to the Edwardian age of 1907. It tells the story of a wealthy aristocrat, Sir Anthony Ross, who stages an abrupt Arctic expedition in search of his son, who has gone missing in search for the place where whales go to die. <laughs> Uh, Which, I mean, who wouldn't want to see that? Yeah. Ross hires archaeologist John Iverson, inexplicably played by David Hartman. <laughs> um, I does bad casting, man. Some, yeah, some cognitive dissonance in this one. Real, yeah, real. That is. Yeah. Yeah. So he hires uh, David Hartman to help with the search, brings on the French Captain Brieu to fly them there. In his invention, the spectacular flying ship Hyperion. Jeff, this movie is worth it just for the Hyperion. Yeah, luckily, it's so slow-paced. Uh, there's just a lot of great shots of the Hyperion, which is great. Yeah. But but again, I mean, how did this miss? There's so many good things about this movie, but it's not... I, but I do want to go watch it again. This is making me want to watch it. and I'm gonna I know. Like, I mean, it's uh, one of those... Movies where it's like the elements are all there. It just doesn't like come together. It doesn't you know? transcend the parts. Yeah. At all. Right. Yeah. Just some, just some really some bad casting. And there's some real seventies haircuts mixed in there yes. that are really disturb, like a uh, confusing and yeah. Distracting. Yeah. Is what the a lot word. of sweaty, bad haircuts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but the, yeah, this uh, Hyperion really holds its own against the Nautilus. I yes. feel like. Yes. And one could be forgiven for thinking, you know, this was a real Verne adaptation. It really feels taken from one of his scientific romances. It's uh, it's a it's a good thing. So the film, uh, renamed from the source material uh, to Island at the Top of the World, uh, tells about this group. They head off on their expedition, and after trials and tribulations, they find the lost island of Astragard, which is occupied by an ancient society of Norsemen. Uh, there are good guys and there are bad guys. There are some good special effects. There are some iffy special effects. There's an unfortunate comedic Eskimo named Umiak, played by the actor Mako. Uh, poor Mako, who made his first credited film appearance playing the idiot nephew Kenji oh, in The Ugly Docks. Kenji, poor guy. Ugh. Mako. Mm. Why Mako? Mm-mm. Uh, this film was heavily hyped by Disney and appeared at least from production materials to be the second coming of Disney Vernian adventure. Surely this would be an extraordinary voyage for the ages. Young Tony Baxter was sold and he started formulating ideas for a new land at Disneyland, which would pay tribute to this new film as well as 20,000 leagues. Unfortunately, when Island at the top of the world came out in 1974, it didn't set the world on fire wasn't much of a financial success. But Tony Baxter being Tony Baxter, he kept plugging away at the idea. In 1975, he started work on a model of his new land, which he completed in six weeks. Wow. Yeah. Disneyland at the time had a frontier land problem, as Imagineers felt it had grown stale as the mid-century Western craze waned. Operationally, the park itself really wanted to open a new passage from Fantasyland to Frontierland, as back then Fantasyland just dead-ended on its west side, kind of near where the Village House restaurant is now. Just a dead end. Yeah, that'd be wild to imagine that. Yeah, not connecting there. That's, That's a bottleneck. Yeah. yeah. To solve this, Baxter proposed removing the mine train through nature's wonderland, 
a classic frontier land attraction, which took up a massive parcel of land on the eastern banks of the rivers of America. Now, Jeff, I know he had good intentions, but this still makes me kind of salty that Tony did the mine train dirty. I mean, it's true. Yeah, I, as much as I love what replaced it, uh, that would have been one of my favorite attractions. I'm sure Western River Expedition, which he took, you know, kind of took out maybe uh, same maneuver. Who knows? Yeah, uh, but definitely mine train. Ah, oh, Mr. Baxter. I'm just just a long train ride past stuff, and then fountains. Color. Imagine fountains. the uh, the 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 river ride through the western town. Mm-hmm. On the other coast. <sighs> so in this new plan, in Baxter's plan, the southernmost portion of the mine train plot would be devoted to Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, a roller coaster that Baxter was adapting for the Magic Kingdom from Mark Davis's massive unrealized Thunder Mesa project. North of Big Thunder would be the new passage to Fantasyland, which we know today as Big Thunder Trail. But north of that, where nature's wonderland used to reside and where the star Wars sits now was to be discovery Bay. This area was to be a continuation of the big thunder narrative telling what happened after gold was found at big thunder. It was to be a beautiful land full of amazing attractions and characters and Baxter seemed bound and determined to make it happen. Can I just say that what we just said aside I do love the Big Thunder narrative. I love Big Thunder too, but love the narrative. I wish there was more stuff around that narrative, uh, including you know that would be a a movie I would like to see. Yes, about, based on a theme park attraction. The Big that Thunder. would be a great. Well, yeah. you know they did a comic adaptation several yes. years ago now. Yes, yes, and uh, that I I think you're totally right. That would make a fun western uh, western film, right? Uh, certainly. I mean, Big Thunder is a known property, so you'd think they would they would go with that. Right, right. Uh, despite the failure of Island at the Top of the World, by 1976, the land was featured in the Walt Disney Productions annual report, along with photographs of Baxter working on the model. Themed to the San Francisco of the Gold Rush Age, said the report, Discovery Bay will bring to life a time and place that climaxed an age of discovery and expansion. Here would be located attractions based on the motion pictures Island at the Top of the World and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the latter featuring undersea dining in the Grand Salon of Captain Nemo's famous submarine. Mm, mm, mm. Yes, 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 please. Around that time, a 120th scale model of the land was placed in an exhibit on Main Street's Town Square called Disneyland Presents a Preview of Coming Attractions. A lengthy title right (laughs) artwork for the land was featured accompanied by promotional blurbs a memo was also issued by imagineering discussing the plans for the land but 1976 was a busy year and saw the green light be issued for both tokyo disneyland and epcot center with wed's full attention devoted to those projects discovery bay got placed on the back burner by the early 80s however the land was still a possibility At Imagineer's workshop in 1981, Baxter held forth on future development, saying the land had undergone varying degrees of activity over the years and was currently slated to be built at Disneyland. As Epcot and Tokyo development waned, work seems to have picked up on the project. Art exists from this period for the land by Joe Rohde and others, 
including pieces by Harper Goff, the Disney legend who created the design for Disney's Nautilus itself. Golf, who was very much a fan of this aesthetic, as we've said, uh, contributed heavily to Discovery Bay over the years. So it was a Nautilus brain trust really working on this project. Oh, man. Discovery Bay popped up frequently during the 1980s. In 1984, the LA Times reported that, quote, a proposal for the most ambitious expansion of Disneyland since the world-famous theme park opened 30 years ago is now under study by executives of Walt Disney Productions. Kept under wraps for nearly a decade, a newly proposed multi-million dollar entertainment area, tentatively called Discovery Bay, could change the face of Disneyland within the next four years. The article said that financial analysts felt that Disneyland had been too long neglected by the company as it focused on Walt Disney World and Epcot Center, and it was time to invest in the mothership. Other reported plans, which were said to be in the works at the time, were another revamping of Tomorrowland, and even a scaled-down version of Epcot Center to be built adjacent to Disneyland. I had no idea Westcott went back this far. Wow, me neither. Uh, I mean, gosh, Discovery Bay is just such a story of near misses. I mean, it's like if Island in the Top of the World had been a bigger movie, if this, that, this, that, the other thing. Also, if a scaled-down version of Epcot would have been built adjacent to Disneyland, would Epcot have been updated more through the years? And Yeah. yeah oh, so yeah, many, a lot so of what-ifs. Yep. Uh, one gets the idea through this era that Baxter was pushing the land very hard, and there always just seemed to be well-timed leaks to the press that the land is still under development and just over the horizon. In 1985, at the Disneyland 30th anniversary press event, a video was even shown to reporters that touted Discovery Bay as an upcoming development. In fact, Baxter appeared during an episode of Disney Family Album, an early Disney Channel offering, and touted the land. Disneyland is around 80 developed acres. In addition to that are these 30 acres up here, 35, that have nothing in them. Discovery Bay it's kind of a once-only place in time. It's a Victorian uh, place that occurred at the turn of the century. It's the kind of place that Jules Verne or H.G. Wells might have inhabited. So you'll actually be able to, for instance, board the Nautilus and have a very elegant meal down below the water while you're being serenaded on the pipe organ and looking out at all the uh, scenic wonders of the ocean floor from those overhead windows. This is just one of the adventures that might go into here. There's uh, like I said, a flight on an aerial suspended monorail system that looks like a dirigible and a time machine. So that's one of our key excitements for the future. Yeah, he he always seemed to know how to, to promote very well. He's very uh, savvy in that regard. Yeah, when you're looking back through the old articles, it really becomes clear. You're like, hmm, I wonder where this came from. <laughs> I wonder right. where this came from. Like, Well-placed sources within Imagineering say that it's definitely going to happen. Right. Uh, at one point, it was even said that the company was so into the idea that they had asked Baxter to explore the idea of expanding Discovery Bay into an entirely separate theme park, which would be located next to Disneyland and would connect to the park via some form of subway. That would have been a good idea. A whole theme park for it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, subway it would work. is bizarre. I don't know. <laughs> Some way. It's like a, a, a boring machine, you know, a yeah, mining yeah. machine or that something. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, that, that would have been a theme I could work with, for sure. Of course, we also know the story about how Eisner's kid was allowed to run through Imagineering and pick what would be developed next. And 
Perhaps it was his choice of Splash Mountain around this time that doomed Discovery Bay once more, but you know, who knows? Could have been. But what exactly would Discovery Bay be like? Well, let's go find out. Keep in mind, a lot of descriptions of the area over the years are vague, and attraction lineups probably evolved throughout its long development. So it's hard to get a fix on what exactly it was. It was always in flux. But as we said, the land would have its roots in the San Francisco of the 1850s through 1880s. It was to embody an age of discovery, exploration, and expansion. Said Imagineering, Discovery Bay would reflect the influx of opportunists, dreamers, and adventurers that poured into this cultural melting pot after the discovery of gold. The railroad link with the East had brought with it the beginnings of culture and luxury, and the area was now earning its reputation as a city of myths and eccentricities. That's a good premise. Uh, great. I'm in. Yeah. Uh, apropos to the era, gold played a large part in the mythos of the area. The land's lore begins with a young inventor named Jason Chandler, who lived in a town called International Village around 1849, the peak years of the gold rush in the Big Thunder region. Chandler had big ideas. He came up with the idea of a drilling machine which could bore into Big Thunder Mountain with the intent of extracting gold. The legend was that Big Thunder's veins of gold were so large and so deep they could make a person fantastically wealthy many times over. But apparently Chandler's ideas were mocked by locals, as any, you know, egghead would be, until a cave-in on Big Thunder trapped 26 miners underground. Mm. Chandler came to the rescue with his machine, saving all the miners just before another earthquake struck, sucking him and his machine down into the ground. The townspeople, who now saw Chandler as a great hero, devoted their efforts to trying to dig Chandler up, but he was never seen again. Neither, for that matter, was the gold as Big Thunder dried up immediately after the earthquake and turned the area into a ghost town. Chandler, for his part, managed to survive thanks to his machine and dug himself to safety. Worried about potential misuse of his inventions, he decided to pull a disappearing act a la Captain Nemo and <laughs> set up a new outpost on the coast near San Francisco. This he dubbed Discovery Bay, as he would use all his wealth from Big Thunder to subsidize the creation of new works of science and imagination. Again, you got me here. You got me hooked. It's very detailed. It really is. It begins with story, Michael. It all I begins know. with story. This is uh, Meriwether Adam Pleasure levels yes, of detail. Yes. 
Uh, uh, guests would approach Discovery Bay from either Big Thunder or Fantasyland through an area called Crossroads, which was to be a promenade of international shops and restaurants. The Discovery Bay settlement would surround a bay inlet from the rivers of America with rock outcroppings reaching into the water. On one of these stone features, a lighthouse would serve as one of the land's visual icons, an idea later reused in early plans for the Disney Sea Park. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can see uh, a, a lot when Frank Wells passed, there were a lot of pictures of him with that Disney Sea model with that lighthouse on it. So I always think of him when I see that. Right. And we, this is, the, yeah, one of many things. It's just, I'm sure we'll get to it. Just gets scattered to the four winds with this. Uh, ideas go everywhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. A wharf area would provide a docking place for several berthed ships, as well as a place for the SS Columbia to arrive and depart. In some later versions of the land, the Columbia was to be permanently moored there to serve as an interactive play area. The dock would have an international flair with a traditional Chinatown area featuring a Chinese restaurant and themed merchandise areas. Chinatown would also feature an attraction called the Fireworks Factory, this was in originally intended to be a fireworks-themed shooting gallery, but it developed into a full attraction concept. Said Disney, here guests could test their marksmanship, bursting skyrockets, pinwheels, and various firecrackers as they move through a whimsical assembly line. Uh, I feel like this would have had to have been a fiber-optic wonderland. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like a uh, early kind of... Uh buzz Lightyear, you know kind of <laughs> oh absolutely i mean it's yeah it's a ride through shooting gallery so it's yeah. totally an early buzz thing but i just picture so many fiber optic firework effects oh yeah yeah it would be in this in this era absolutely uh we should mention here that there was eventually something called the fireworks factory uh, <laughs> but it was just a barbecue restaurant at pleasure island when Never it opened in that's one of the uh Things scattered to the four winds, you know, the, the name, the fireworks factory. Yeah. That's yeah. too good of a name. We got to use right. it somewhere. What about that name? Put it next to Madison's dive. Also docked at this wharf would have been the iconic Nautilus submarine, which was said to have been salvaged by Jason Chandler and Ned Land. They were buddies. Well, of course they were. The submarine would play host to multiple experiences, including a walkthrough attraction taking you through the workings of the ship. In the ship's grand salon would be found a fine dining restaurant, and in later iterations, the ship would also house a simulator attraction. Now, while this obviously never happened, the Nautilus walkthrough was achieved in Disneyland Paris's Discoveryland, as we spoke about with Tim Delaney. That attraction was overseen by, of course, Tom Sherman, who would work so hard to bring Discovery Bay to life. There were also Nemo-themed attractions and a restaurant at Mysterious Island in Tokyo Disney Sea. So, cast to the four winds. That's right. As one roamed the streets of Discovery Bay, they would find, said Imagineering in 1976, quote, elaborate gaming halls with crystal chandeliers and plush interiors, while the shop windows could reflect the runaway inflation of the golden economy. Eggs, $188 a dozen. Room and board, $100 a day. A parody on today's economic situation. Ha ha ha. Ha ha. Commentary. Actual shops might include the model works, featuring Disney-oriented scale reproductions, 
and a scientific supplies office. Hmm. Uh, I want that model shop. Oh, I know. Gosh. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Go, uh, go broke there. I, I love the little zinger about seventies inflation. <laughs> uh, you know, right. you know, uh, aside from oh, foot power and the Columbia, there were other ways to arrive at discovery Bay in style. A fancy Edwardian train station would allow the Disneyland and Santa Fe Railroad to stop there. Another attraction, the Western Balloon Ascent, would carry guests in balloon-styled vehicles over a large berm into another planned but never built land, the fantasy land-adjacent Dumbo Circus. Uh, this was just one of many balloon-themed attractions Baxter tried out over the years. He did want a balloon really bad. I love the name Western Balloon Ascent. I yeah. really wish so. That's great. Uh, you name. know, the marquee would just be spectacular. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And man, would I love to be on this ride? Think about a park with a Skyway and a Western Balloon Ascent. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Just touring everywhere. Especially because the Balloon Ascent would be coming down kind of where the other, the Fantasyland Skyway was. That's anyway. right. So That's right. Across the streams. Yeah. I, I want that balloon ride, man. I want it. Uh, in this fancier, more developed area of the town would be found the land's most prominent attractions. In Professor Marvel's gallery, you would have a fascinating visit with the foremost collector of the exotic, weird, and whimsical from all over the world. This would be a carousel theater show showcasing all of the treasures which Professor Marvel had collected in his travels. Marvel, who was clearly based on Professor Marvel from The Wizard of Oz, uh, which is a Tony Baxter favorite, absolutely, would have been accompanied in this show by his favorite discovery, a little green dragon. If this sounds familiar, it's because the Professor Marvel show formed the conceptual basis for Epcot's eventual journey into imagination attraction. And they brought their carousel with them. Mm-hmm. True. Very true. Another attraction in this area was a roller coaster called The Tower, or later... <laughs> The Spark Gap Coaster. This was said to be a wild structure that takes guests down a dizzy spiral and into a giant magnetic structure where the forces of magnetism are demonstrated in a most exciting manner. That's a mm. great description. Yeah. The Tower. Uh, this attraction was even considered much later for Paris's Discovery Land. Which I guess means we need to get Tim Delaney back on the horn to ask him yeah, about that. Yeah, absolutely. I it was supposed to, to be more about that. Uh, back by Star Tours, I think, down there in the back of Discoveryland, I think. The Tower. The Tower. One attraction which seems rather vague and may have been a phase two plan was a time travel or possibly dimensional adventure, as the writings of H.G. Wells could tie well into the time period of the land. Uh, later artwork depicts an indoor-outdoor attraction possibly called The Lost World, which would have been a boat ride through scenes filled with dinosaurs, which, yes, please. Come on, you need the dinosaurs. Yeah, the dinosaurs. Uh, a sort of Jungle Cruise dinosaur style would be fantastic. Yeah. Of course, the centerpiece e-ticket, which would anchor the land, was the attraction based on the island at the top of the world. Said Imagineering, in another corner... A group of opportunists have set up shop. <laughs> Among the promises and allures offered are those of a French aerial explorer. He promises brave adventurers a trip aboard a fantastic flying machine to an island of paradise located at the top of the world. Uh, 
Baxter saw Discovery Bay as a way to put a ride based on the film in Disneyland in a way that was thematically appropriate. Said Imagineering, With this setup, we could effectively integrate a very exciting show that has been difficult to fit into the logic of the park's existing realms. This Island at the Top of the World adventure and several others are not really fairy tales for Fantasyland, nor Backwoods Frontier adventures, but they do date from the late 19th century and could use the Discovery Bay location as a debarkation point for adventure. Uh, thematic integrity. <sighs> Sounds nice. Sounds real what good. What a world. What a world. This island at the top of the world ride sounds wild. Uh, you'd travel in Hyperion airships, which would be suspended from a monorail beam a la Peter Pan's flight. Imagineering described the start of the attraction thus. <laughs> Amid the sounds of cold engines and some obviously disturbed chickens, <laughs> the, <laughs> the balloon ascends into a blazing sunset. As the glow fades, a surrealistic lighting effect becomes prominent. The captain begins to recount the numerous legends regarding the Aurora Borealis, but is interrupted by heavy air turbulence. The first mate's report indicates that the safest air zone to be right at surface level. Hmm. So... To avoid turbulence, the Hyperion would descend, where you would see ice flows on the ocean and then vast ice fields. Reindeer, polar bears, seals, walruses, creatures like snow leopards and Arctic hares would also be seen. This sounds amazing already. Yeah, man. I imagine it being like an Arctic version of the Grand Canyon diorama. Yes. And yes. You, with all these animals. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, like kind of the nature's wonderland DNA with the animals everywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. You'd see some migrating whales and follow them to a narrow gorge, which is cut into an enormous ice wall. Now the plan was that your captain would fly over the wall in the ship, but the storms force him to change this plan. Instead, he has to take riders into the same gorge as the whales. Something goes wrong. Something goes wrong. The turning point. So um, inside this ice wall would be, uh, well, walls of ice and large labyrinths of crystals. Tinkling sounds would begin as the crystals start to shatter and the captain shuts down the engines to stop the nearly fatal vibrations. Spooky. Mm -hmm. Like You can imagine how amazing this would look, you know? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, I can't uh, finally, imagine how large it would be. Yeah, enormous. Finally, guests would find the entrance to the lost civilization of Astrogard, which would be guarded by an enormous temple of ice built there as tribute to the whales, which provided food and stores for the people of the land. As guests took in the temple of the whales and its surrounding field of icicle-draped whale bones... Hmm. Uh, they would be started out of their reverie by a sudden whale attack on the Hyperion. What? Uh, the whales just attacked the Hyperion. The captain hmm. had to re-engage the engines to pull away from leaping whales. And uh, you barely escape as many ice crystals start to shatter all around. I don't know about the attacking whales. Well, you know, it's, it's the place where they go to die. So I guess. <laughs> they need their privacy. Yeah. Uh, now you find yourself gazing at the ruins of Astrogard itself. Now, apparently disaster has struck. Volcanic vents, which once sustained life in the region, have cooled, leaving ice to take back the city. 
As the captain talks about tales he's heard about the fantastic creatures which once inhabited the area, an alert is sounded saying that a temperature change has been detected ahead. Sure enough, the ice ahead would slowly melt away to reveal a lush garden surrounding a massive altar stone. This is the Temple of Astrogard. Once bound by ice, it is again warming up and pushing back the Arctic frost. Hmm. Uh, and here's where things get really trippy. Uh, in the garden would be a menagerie of fantastical exotic creatures of all kinds. Uh, there are warnings that things might be getting too warm for the Hyperion to maintain control, but the captain is obsessed with the idea of capturing one of these creatures and goes further on into the ruins in the interests of science. Inside the temple itself are huge stone deities and flaming altars and many more even crazier far-out life forms. Huh. I, I'm imagining like E.T. adventure at this point. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, it's getting hotter and hotter because of all these flames and whatnot. So finally, the Hyperion spirals out of control and drifts upwards into the storm. It's buffeted about in the clouds and guests are treated to an array of effects, putting them in the midst of an electrical storm. Oh. As the turmoil subsides, they find themselves with Discovery Bay again on the horizon, sitting calmly in the moonlight. As they disembark, they pass a news photographer who is posing the captain and his new mascot, a creature he has brought back from Astrogard. There's a little button. There's a little button there for you. Right. Wow. This is an epic. How amazing that would be. Yeah, that would... Uh, I mean, forget about the movie. That just attraction would be wild. Unbelievable. Yes. It's really out there. Uh, one can see how Disney might not have wanted to tie such an expensive project to a failed film, but still, you know, it would have been a great ride. Uh, even their reticence didn't stop Baxter and his friends from trying. In the early 80s, Tom Sherman practically self-financed a short film called The Discovery Bay Chronicles, which was intended to pitch a TV show of the same name to the studio. The hope was that Disney would make a mini-series based on Discovery Bay and the adventures of Jason Chandler, and that would prove such a success that Discovery Bay would now be a proven property upon which they could base the land and sell that in turn to Disneyland. Starring as Chandler in the five-minute film was Pete Renaday, prolific program. Disney actor and voice artists. Uh, perfect. Uh, ironically, uh, Renaday had provided the voice for Captain Nemo in the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea attraction. That's right. That he did. The perfect guy for it. The show never happened, but Baxter kept plugging. In 1998, the LA Times published an article saying that Discovery Bay was back on. In this iteration, it would be a redevelopment of the north half of Tom Sawyer Island and would involve the permanent docking of the Columbia and Mark Twain. It would also feature a thrill ride called Geyser Falls, an adaptation of the Tower of Terror ride system, which I believe we discussed with Bob Baranek way back in episode nine. That's right. Yeah. Uh, this article is really weird because at first you assume it's a Baxter leak, but instead it has a statement from Dave Fisher at Imagineering saying that Discovery Bay was under active consideration. However, it also quotes a Disneyland spokesman uh, by name, who seems quite annoyed by the whole line of questioning, says he says, oh, it's just an internet rumor, 
And the park has no intent to build anything called Discovery Bay or anything like hmm. that. Hmm. So it's this really weird instance of WDI and Disneyland both issuing public opposing statements. It's kind of like the uh, sub disagreement. They have. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's totally what it's like. I didn't even think about that. Uh, perhaps in the end, Discovery Bay could never escape the stigma of its origins as Eisner arrived and began focusing on hotter and more current pop culture franchises. As Tony Baxter would relate to the e-ticket, quote, let me go back to the forging of the alliance with George Lucas for Star Tours. We were reacting to the fact that the Disney company had been out of touch with the motion picture marketplace for 15 years. We had done attractions like Discovery Bay based on Island at the Top of the World. We had done rides based on the Black Hole and based on Tron and based on Robin Hood. And we would no sooner get the attraction done and the movie would come out and not meet expectations. Then, to get studio executives to support a park with more money on something they were hoping to hide was impossible. Discovery Bay was probably one of the biggest disappointments for me. I still believe that to visit a Jules Verne place along a frontier river where this eclectic collection of inventors, dreamers, and schemers of that period are being funded to create their visions of the future, that would have been a fabulous place to see. So when the island came and went, so did the Discovery Bay concept. It wasn't that we had a bad idea, it was the fact that we tied it to a weak property. And when the world is ready for a new and better life, all this will someday come to pass. I'm Captain Nemo. Welcome to Mysterious Island. Well, that will wrap up this month's episode. Michael, we said before we started recording, we could talk. We could do a whole other episode on this very easily. Yes. it's Each of these things spins off into its own thing. You know, you could do a whole episode about 20,000 Leagues, a whole episode about the ride 20,000 Leagues, the multiple versions of that. Yeah, there's. Uh, it's such a fascinating topic for me and I was so into Vern as a kid because of Disney, of course, and got really into it. And this is just it's such a deep well of great stories that I would love, you know, big movie universes are the rage these days. I'd love to see like the Vern movie universe with all these stories. Right. And that was what was cool about Vern was things did tie together. Like Mysterious Island, these guys wind up, uh, you know, stranded on this island. And it turns out it's Captain Nemo's there. Captain Nemo's, you know, living there. So there was a little right. bit of, like, connective tissue, which made it kind of exciting. Yeah, well, you got the League of Ex Extraordinary Gentlemen, Michael. Man, and, well, you know, Disney owns Fox now. And I don't know if they still have the rights to that. But I would love to see a revival of that. That the movie was a travesty, but the idea is <laughs> such a great idea. Yeah, it it's is. such a perfect idea. I would love to see 
a, like a revival of that. I mean, Disney has the Society of Explorers and Adventurers, which is kind of the same idea, just with, you know, made up. Well, they're all made up people, but uh, Disney made up people. Right. Uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is kind of like that with great fiction characters of old that are uh, past copyright and can be done whatever with. Uh, that would be so much fun to revive that and, ha- and live in that world a while. Yeah. I mean, gosh. Uh, yeah. I wish that movie would have been better because it's, it's, it's such a great idea. But yeah. They could tie it in to see if they wanted to. There's, yeah. there's a lot of good It'd be stuff. Be like a kind of like a competing faction. You know? Right. Right. Well, Michael, it's that time where we check in and see if anyone's joined up to our Patreon program. Uh, has anybody signed up? Yes, we've got a lot of people to welcome this month, thankfully. I'm really excited to have you all. I'd like to welcome Brian, Craig, Gary, and Beth, and Jeff, Scott Gerard, our buddy Scott Gerard. I mean, that is humbling. Scott, thank you. Very humbling. Thank you to everybody. You know, it's just such a, it is humbling to have all of you sign up. Uh, what do they get, Michael? Oh my gosh. They get, well, they get early access to our episodes. They get a little packet of Progress City swag. In fact, I have a stack of envelopes here right beside me getting ready to go out directly to them. And at the uh, silver level, of course, they get a monthly live stream event that we put on where we get on, we have a chat, we have a fun time in, in the chat with all our sort of regulars. And we look at, you know, uh, rare images and some rare video and we kind of have a thematic thing tied into tied into that month so it's it's a lot of fun we're really grateful to the people who join us and we have a a good time you know once a month hanging out that's right and uh you've been working on some other other stuff over there haven't you yes i i'm glad you mentioned that because i had forgotten uh i can't believe i've forgotten so i've started a new thing uh Called, calling it the Progress City Public Library. And I have got a ton of stuff <laughs> that I've digitized over the years, scanned in. A lot of stuff that's not out there circulating amongst fans and stuff I think people would find pretty interesting. So I'm starting up a little library of my own. Uh, you can find it uh, at uh, the Internet Archive. Uh, there's, there's not a... I guess what you, a dedicated link yet. I'm working on that where they'll give me a dedicated link. So uh, for now, you'll just have to search for Progress City on archive.org. But uh, it it's, it's a fun little project. And for our Patreon backers, I have sort of skipped, given them a, a lightning lane, shall we say. You know, <laughs> on Archive, I'm only uploading about five or ten documents a day just because, you know, I, I mean, I'm not made of time, people. But for our Patreon backers, I just went ahead and uploaded a big chunk of documents, which they can download in a big chunk if they want to, and just have them all right now. So just a little, just a little taste of something for our Patreon folks. Well, that is exciting. And if you have not checked out our Patreon, you wonder what it's like what we all offer in specific you can check it out at patreon.com slash progress city usa and we thank you all for listening and signing up absolutely it's it really keeps us going so we appreciate it now 
if you would just like to get in touch with us any kind of way. We have an email. It's podcast at Progress of the USA. We appreciate any kind of feedback, any ideas, any commentary you have. Just drop us a line there. You can always reach us on Twitter. Michael is at Progress of the USA. I am at Jeff G. Crawford. We're just we're just out there on Twitter waiting to hear from you. So thanks for all of you who chime in about our episodes. It is always great to hear what you have to say about them. And Michael, what is coming up next in our world? Well, what's coming up next is a bit of a secret, but uh, I promise that you will enjoy it. Uh, We're going to try and get an interview coming up to you next, and then we'll have another themed episode coming up next month, which hopefully will be tied into the spirit of the season. I'll tell you that. Well, that will be fun. And uh, yeah, something to look. Keep checking your feed now. We will be back in a little bit more regular rotation. I know we've said that before, and uh, we've usually helped to that, but we've got, a, we've got a bunch on the way to look forward to. So look forward to sharing those stories with you. Uh, anything else to say before we shove off uh, in our own little Nautilus, Michael? Uh, no, I'm just... Uh... Say, help, we are in here. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I've got my grain alcohol bottles full of fish. And, uh, you know, we didn't even talk about Snoopy, the seal. I know. (laughs) Snoopy slash Esmeralda. We'll have to save that for another episode. We've got to talk more about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And, uh, you know, if you're interested, we have more to to discuss. Flabalina Ocalina. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks for joining us, everybody. It was fun talking, and we'll see you next time. Right now, it's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress... Tell them about Progress City. Thanks Thanks for for joining joining us. us. Listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.